0: And for those who came a little late i was going to do a talk um which i think well i know now um it's going to be a two-part talk maybe three-part talk we'll see uh depending on how much i talk but uh, i wanted to talk for for the next couple weeks about um sustaining qualities of the heart and uh, i didn't want to rush through the topic because the topic's quite big Uh, So I wanted to give ourselves an opportunity for the next few weeks to talk about this really important idea. And most of the time when we're talking about heart-mind qualities, of course, we're talking about the enlightenment factors, the factors of awakening, which are the qualities of heart-mind that the Buddha talked about that led to his awakening. And these are the factors that are uh, created through meditation practice, both on and off the cushion. So these are mindfulness and concentration, joy and tranquility, equanimity. Most of us are familiar with at least a few of these heart qualities that we that we cultivate through meditation practice directly. And we also try to enliven and nurture in life off the cushion as well, because that's where the Dharma truly lives, of course. So for the next few weeks, I wanted to be able to... Uh, Talk about at least a couple of the factors each week and talk about how we keep them going, how we sustain them in practice. On occasion, I get questions from folks saying, Well, mindfulness is beginning, but it keeps going away, or tranquility has arisen, but how do I keep it? Um, or other questions like, I'm equanimous in this situation, but not in another situation. And so this is something that all meditators um, in skillful speech, sorry, skillful speech, skillful action, learn to do, which is to cultivate these qualities, but to keep them going. So it becomes not just a moment of mindfulness, but a life of mindfulness. Not just a moment of compassion, but a life and a day-to-day experience of compassion. And that movement from experiencing these heart qualities just for a few minutes versus for days at a time or... Being able to experience them in in different parts of our life, this is really about what we call sustaining. Uh, we cultivate, we sustain, and we balance these heart mind factors. But we don't we don't really talk about the sustaining <laughs> sustaining part so much. So I really it just caught my mind, it caught my eye, and I'd, I'd like to talk about it a little bit tonight and next week, and uh, possibly the week after. We'll see how it goes. But what I wanted to to first talk about is just some essential notes about practice and why uh, this whole idea of sustaining even comes up in our practice and why we'd come across it as meditators and why students often ask questions about this. And oftentimes what happens is we are on the cushion and maybe we can experience mindfulness for a minute or two and maybe that mindfulness will start to be sustained for four or five minutes. But then the mind leaves, right? You get in this groove and mindfulness is pleasant and there's a sense of connectedness and expansion and maybe a sense of love or interbeing. And then the mind says, you know what? I'd rather roll into the past and resent something. Or I'd like to roll into the future and worry about something. Even though just two seconds earlier, you were sitting in the present moment, completely present and awake and aware to what was arising and it was a perfectly good moment, but the mind says, I'm done with that perfectly good moment. I am going to think about a checklist or I'm gonna worry about work. So why does this happen? Why is it that even though we can cultivate mindfulness, then it doesn't seem to sustain itself. It seems to leave. Another example of this is that we can cultivate a quality. that we, uh, let me see, give an example. We can cultivate, say, uh, skillful speech. We can cultivate our ability to be compassionate and an attentive listener and skillful in our speech with one person in our life, but then somebody else gets on the phone and we completely lose the balance of our minds. Why is it that we can cultivate some sense of gratitude and generosity in one moment, and then this other person, we can't, we just, we're gonna just hate them for a while, right? We're gonna be antagonistic in our head for this one person. So, why is that? How, why can't we just? Cultivate the compassion and have it last. And so that's what we mean by sustains. Like, can we go from cultivation and nurturing to a real sustenance, a real nourishment that is continuous in our lives, something that lives with us from day to day, from moment to moment, from relationship to relationship, from uh, situation to situation. Can we do that? That's where we're really looking to go. And so I'll start off by just just talking a little bit about that fact, Um, We have to remember that we are cultivating and nourishing new ways of being. These are habits. Mindfulness is a habit. Love is a habit. Happiness is a habit. And the more we practice cultivating them, the more we get to see them day in and day out. So we have to remember that these are habits. These are new ways of being, new ways of feeling, new ways of thinking. Mindfulness is about re-relating to ourselves, to relate to ourselves in a brand new way, to relate to others in a brand new way. And whenever we cultivate new habit patterns, our old habit patterns rebel. They're going to push back. And so it's something to remember that when we cultivate new ones, the old habits are kind of like, I don't know, for those of you with siblings, where you want to sit somewhere and your sibling has sat there first and they're like, I was here first and so you can't watch TV or you can't do this. The, ha- the old habits don't want to leave. They're here first. They feel like they want to just continue to live and enjoy their whatever priority. And you're saying, no, I don't want to be mindless. I want to be mindful. And the mindless habits, the habits of anger and aversion and resentment are suddenly felt feel left out and they push back. They fight for their position. And so we try to nurture something new and the old habits... They wrestle with us, right? They fight for their position and they fight to stay alive. And you can feel that sometimes in your heart and mind. You're trying to cultivate a new habit and the old habit is like, hell no, I'm going to stay here for the long haul. You're not getting rid of me. Anyone who's ever tried to initiate diet or exercise, it happens all the time. You initiate the new habit and then that old habit of eating the cookie or the Ben and Jerry's or whatever is not going to just leave. It still wants to be nourished and satisfied, and so it doesn't just give way. This is why it's difficult to sustain, because as we're cultivating, the old habits are trying to remain where they were. Um, And from a neuroscience perspective, the neuropathways are legitimately real, right? We have physical neuropathways of these habits that are trying to maintain uh, this nourishment. So we have some competition there, and that's just something that we need to understand and accept It really helps to honor the fact that these new habits are in just, in fact, that they're new. They need to be cared for, they need to be nourished. You think of them as a plant, they need to be watered, they need sunlight, they need fertilizer, they need care and consideration, and they take time to grow. Being patient and persistent with ourselves is so important as meditators. Being kind to ourselves and being generous with ourselves in understanding that practice and nurturing of new habits takes time and energy and effort, and it does not happen overnight. One of the uh, the analogies I like is when you're training a puppy to sit or stay, and you invite the puppy to stay, and then it stays maybe once or twice, and you can give it a treat. But then the third time you ask it, it runs over and jumps on you and licks you and tries to get the treat out of your hand because it knows what's coming, and it's completely lost the balance of its mind, and it's, it's not doing what you're asking. Now... In that moment, you don't think to yourself, oh, everything's gone wrong. You realize that the puppy is still learning to do the task, and learning means that you don't get it right every time. Learning means you're going to practice 20, 30 times, and maybe of those 20, 30 times, half of them work and the other half don't. Same with mindfulness. You invite the mind to be present. You invite it to be central. You invite it to be with your hand or your nose or your heart and It agrees for half a second, maybe a minute or two, and then it wanders off to do something else. That's okay. Learning to be mindful includes wandering mind. Learning to be mindful includes a mind that has agitation and depression and anxiety, ill will, right? All of those things arise during perfectly normal and great meditation practice. So we have to be patient with ourselves. We have to remember that we're creating new habits. And in order to sustain them, we have to be patient with them. We have to nurture and love them and love ourselves during the entire process. If we try and rush it, it really doesn't work very well and it becomes a very uncomfortable experience rather than an experience of joy and exploration, right? And an experience of excitement and discovery. So those are the kind of things we like to keep in mind as we move into creating these new habit patterns, honoring the fact that it takes effort. And time. Now, another thing that students stumble up against when they're learning new habits, especially in the Dharma, is that we end up with these hot buttons. We end up with these parts of ourselves that are really easily triggered our pet peeves, the wounds that we have that are easily triggered by family or our spouses, right? Things that are really triggered when we're upset or we're afraid. We end up with these hot spots. And we have these hot buttons. And it's important to know that we all have them. And those spots, those trigger points that we have, take much longer than a lot of other things to go away. So just because you've been meditating doesn't mean you're still not going to have to wrestle with getting angry when someone in your life calls that you have some kind of beef with, right? It could be a sibling or a parent or a child or something like that. These trigger points that we have, we all have them. And it's just important to know that those kind of things that have been at us for a really long time, they still take time to change. And though you might be cultivating generosity and compassion, though, you may be creating a sense of, um, let's see, courage and optimism in your practice you're still going to run into these hot buttons where someone's going to get under your skin and someone's going to poke you in a way and you're going to lose the balance of your mind. That is a part of practice. And so you just want to keep an eye on them. You just want to note them and know this is a sore spot. I get is easily triggered here and it's okay. It's going to take time for meditation to soften that reactivity. And it's just okay that that's going to take some time. We all have these little trigger points. Similarly, any deep pattern that you have especially stuff that comes from trauma, something that comes from real stress, like a grief or a loss or a divorce, um, some, some loss of any kind, those kind of deep wounds also take a lot of time, even with meditation. Meditation is great as a buffer for those kind of things, but it's important to give yourself the time to grow, the time to change, right? And the time to be at ease. It's not gonna be quick. And so just give yourself permission to grow slowly, steadily right we don't need to rush the practice because that can create a whole new layer of aversion a whole new layer of suffering when we say to ourselves why is this so slow why am i still angry when my mom calls why am i still upset when my partner does this the other day so this comes to mind and it came to mind when i was setting up the talk so i have this wonderful cat i love my cat uh, Mohawk and we adopted him 17 years ago and he's just a delight and I just love the heck out of him and he's getting a little old now and he's having some senility and so he caterwauls from the other room and he caterwauls loudly like he screams until I go out of the other room and I look over the banister and I say hi to him and then he's fine but until then he's going to scream and scream and scream. Now I use this as an opportunity to be calm and to be loving and And most of the time I tell him I say something funny, at least it's funny to me, I don't know about him, but I say something cute to him or funny and it makes it easier that I've been interrupted. But the other day he was caterwauling so loud and I was so, it completely rattled me. And so I yelled out, will you please, please be quiet? And I didn't realize that Molly was on a work Zoom call. (laughs) And so I was yelling at the cat to shut up and my wife was on a work call in the other room so why is it that some moments i could be totally equanimous to the cat screaming and other times i completely have had enough and i lose the balance of my mind and don't feel very loving and don't feel very calm or nourishing to him this is just a part of practice some days we can land it and we can stick the landing and other times we lose the balance of our mind and that's okay we can get triggered something can get under our skin and giving ourselves credit for, for the work that we do, being patient with ourselves is so hugely important as we try and sustain these practices, when we try to sustain uh, these qualities of heart and mind. So keep all that in mind as we as we work through some of these ideas on how we can sustain things. So for today, I would like to talk a little bit about, because we have seven enlightenment factors, so I wanted to start off with investigation, which we also call curiosity. Sometimes we call it discernment. Investigation is the quality of the heart that says, curiously, what is going on in this present moment? What is the breath like right here, right now? Investigation is when we turn to the present moment with a real sense of awe and curiosity, interest, discovery, and we ask ourselves, what is going on here? That's the first step of investigation. The second part of investigation is once we've got that curiosity, once we're in the present moment and we're looking to see what's going on, the the thing we really want to know is in this moment, is there suffering? And if so, in what way am I contributing to this experience? What role am I playing? Can I let go of something? Can I cultivate something? Can I do some equanimity work? Can I do some love and compassion work? So what we're investigating is not just what's happening, but what role am I playing in this moment? That's the true investigation. That's the big aha moment when you realize, oh my gosh, not only am I angry in this moment, but I'm thinking in a particular way that's really contributing to my suffering. That's investigation. Now, in a meditation, you sit for 15, 20 minutes, Oftentimes we can investigate, what is the breath like in this moment? What is my mood like in this moment? We can get in there and we can play around a little bit. But what happens when we leave the cushion? How do we sustain this sense of investigation and curiosity in the world? How do we bring it into the world longer than just a five-minute sit or a few-minute breath meditation? How do we live a life in which we look into our moment-to-moment experience and continue to reflect and ask ourselves, How how in this moment can I be planting seeds of my long-term happiness and well-being? What can I be doing in this moment to show up as a compassionate, kind person dedicated to love, service, and honesty and authenticity, these kind of things? How can we do that? The biggest hang-up for investigation is the fact that compared to the present moment, everything else is just a heck of a lot more interesting. Things are just more fun. So if you think of a cat or a dog, you throw the ball or you use a laser pointer or you toss something sparkly on the ground and and your pet just goes for it because it's so much more interesting than almost anything else. A catnip toy, whatever it might be. For human beings, we're taught that happiness lies everywhere but the present moment. So we're constantly looking outside of ourselves to be curious, to be interested. What's on TV? What's on Netflix? What's going on on Snapchat? What's going on over here? And we're always looking outside ourselves. We're investigating externally. And we have this habit of going outside ourselves and craving not only sensual entertainment, but simply looking anywhere but the present moment for something to do, for something to occupy us. So investigation, to sustain investigation, One of the things we need to do is make the present moment interesting. We have to find a way of making the present moment worth being in. We need to find a way to be in the present moment in a way that's truly curious to us, truly rewarding for us. Now, that's difficult to do in a world where we have so much sensory stimulation. We are so overly stimulated with music and TV and conversation and technology and machinery and sound, right? We are overcommitted. We're overwhelmed. We're multitasking fanatics these days, right? Now, of course, there's this backlash and all this research that says multitasking. No, not not helpful for the nervous system. So now there's this counter trend, which is like, oh, no, multitasking. We thought that that was good. Not so good. So we're overwhelmed with the sensory stimulation. And because we're overwhelmed with the sensory stimulation, The stimulation of the present moment is boring. It seems bland, uninteresting, and uneventful. No one wants to sit and be mindful of an inhale. That's just not as interesting as the new season of Ozark or whatever you're interested in on Netflix, right? Or that lion documentary that came out with the Tiger King or whatever. There's always something else that's far more flamboyant than an exhale, right? There's so many things that are more interesting to put mindfulness to than... The feeling in your big toe. So what we need to do is we have to do what the Buddha says, which is restrain or protect our sense doors. And this is challenging for a lot of us. This is challenging for a lot of us um, because basically what the Buddha is asking us to do is pay attention to be overly stimulated, to being overly stimulated, to look at our life and ask ourselves: where am I feeling overwhelm? Where am I? multitasking or tri-tasking or quadruple-tasking? Where am I taking on too much? So much so that my nervous system is overwhelmed, right? I'm overly stimulated. Because here's the fact of meditation. If I spend 10 minutes being mindful of breathing and three hours binging on Amazon, and this is what I'm guilty of, meditation has no chance of winning, of quieting the mind, right? Because the other sensory input is so intense. And these days, people will be on TV while checking email, while listening to music, and we have three different audio jacks going at the same time. And so in a modern context, when we say protect our sense doors, I translate that as, where are you plugged in? Can you unplug? Are you doubly plugged in, triple plugged in? Look for places in your life where you feel overly stimulated, overly plugged in to media and social contact and context. Where in your life do you feel overwhelmed and overly connected? And take some time to unplug and really be intentional about it because it's such a part of culture now that it's not uncommon that I'm watching TV and then I can see out of the corner of my eye that I got a text, you know, and I'll grab it just intuitively and and check it. So we got to be careful of protecting our sense doors. Back in the day when the Buddha said, protect your sense doors, you didn't even have recorded music. So it would be... A, you know, the sensory stimulation would be drugs, alcohol, sex, live music, live activities. Here, we just have so much overwhelm. So we are, in a sense, at a disadvantage for an overly stimulated uh, nervous system. So the present moment is just bland compared to all this stimulation. So in order for the present moment to become alive again, in order for presence to feel powerful and nourishing um, and and even pleasant... We need to take some time to really decompress. What I like to call purifying or detoxifying the senses. We've got to give our senses a break. We've got to take some time off of TV. We've got to take some time off of social media. It doesn't have to be a lot, but just some strategic withdrawal and trading it up for a higher happiness that exists in the present moment. You will find if you unplug more frequently, your meditations will be clearer and crisper. And your concentration will increase automatically. It happens with everybody who takes time to do this. So look out for multitasking. Take some breaks for media. Um, for me, this is very similar to the times I've done fasting or when I've done a dietary change. Say, in um, I think it was last year, maybe a year and a half ago, I did this detox where I really cut back on sugar. And when I went back to eating more sugar, I couldn't believe how sweet everything was. Like I could hardly eat certain things because now I had a chance to restrain that sense, to detoxify the sense door. And so when I went back, I could really see how sweet things were. Things were really salty, etc. So it's the same with meditation. If you take some time off from being stimulated or decrease, protect your sense doors, you will suddenly begin to find that the present moment is quite pleasurable. That sitting and breathing for longer and longer periods of time becomes very nourishing becomes very satiating. You'll look forward to that time where you're on the cushion or on the couch, wherever you sit. So that's something I would encourage. Uh, Investigating the present moment is tough if everything outside the present moment has lightning and smoke and mirrors and magicians and jugglers and everything else. When the reality is a circus, the present moment is like a punishment. So we have to flip our value system where we begin to look into the present moment for some joy, for some well-being and for some stimulation and for some awakening. And over time, the mind will get accustomed to finding nourishment there, and you will find the present moment will be quite enjoyable without the outside uh, stimulation. So take a take a crack at that. If you do have a journal, I would write down as you move through your days, track a little bit about where you're plugged in, right? Really take a look at how often you're plugged into multiple streams of energy And take a look at areas where you might be able to just decompress a little bit um, and see how that goes for you. Give me a shout out and let me know how that works, what's successful, what's not. I'd like to hear your ideas because this is something that I work on all the time. And uh, some days I can stick the landing and other days I'm watching TV. I might have just done an hour meditation and now I'm watching TV and I'm also checking something on on my phone at the same time. Uh, So anyway, I totally understand how this how this works. So investigation. The other one I wanted to briefly mention today was mindfulness itself. How do we sustain mindfulness? Mindfulness can be sustained for two or three minutes. In the beginning of practice, if you can sustain mindfulness for five minutes without the mind wandering, pat yourself on the back because that is great. Giving yourself five minutes of mindfulness is incredible for the, for the heart, for the mind, for the nervous system. If you can get to the point where you can sit for 15 minutes with the mind not wandering, that's an incredible sense and source of well-being and transformation for you. So the smallest amount of continued mindfulness and sustained mindfulness is fantastic. But we all know how this works. We sit in meditation. We invite the mind to be present. We start breathing. Our posture is all great. We've gladdened the heart and mind. We've picked a spot and we can feel sensations. And then we wake up 20 minutes later and... We don't even know what's going on, right? We don't even know what's happening. It's like, oh, right, I'm meditating. Get back to breath. And the mind just goes, you know, and it's designed to go. So, you know, we don't go to war with the mind. We let the mind do what the mind does. But that being said, we do need to put effort into sustaining mindfulness. Once we get mindfulness for a minute or two, and we can see that the present moment has arrived, so to speak, or we have arrived to it, It's not really a place it's a relationship but we start relating to our awareness in this way we come into this presence as we call it we're there for a minute or two how do we keep it how do we keep the mind from deciding it would rather worry about something it would rather regret something it would rather argue with somebody in in your head right or something like that or make something up my mind makes stuff up all the time imaginary conversations in the middle of a meditation With somebody, and it's not even relevant to anything. Um, And my mind does that; it's just just wandering off and doing something like that, Um, or it's trying to solve a problem, right? Oh, how do I solve this? When I get done with my meditation, I have to go figure out how to make a COVID mask, whatever it is you're trying to figure out, right? Like the mind's trying to figure stuff out. You're asking it to be centered. So, I'm going to give you three things. Um, We're recording the Dharma talk, so you can go back and uh, catch these things. But there's three things that are really important. And I really encourage you to keep track of these in your journal, use your daily journaling to look at these and practice with these and monitor yourself to see what works, what doesn't. There's three things that can really encourage you to sustain mindfulness. One, we've talked about it quite a bit, is cues, reminding the mind to stay centered, reminding the mind, giving the mind cues to stay centered. And I'll go into this in a second. So cues, reminding the mind, rewarding the mind, rewarding the mind when it does what you ask it to do in the same way that you would do if you were training a puppy and you asked it to stay and you wanna give it a treat. You gotta give your mind a treat. You have to congratulate yourself and really look when you're doing well with your mindfulness and acknowledge how challenging it is to get into the present moment and stay there. So rewarding yourself for good behavior, so to speak. So cue the mind, reward the mind. The other thing to do for sustained mindfulness is, is know what distracts you what is your sparkly thing what kind of things pull you out of the present moment and i'll i will show you some examples of how you might do a reflection on this but you really know intimately what distracts you every everyone in this digital dharma hall tonight has a different common distraction some of us get distracted when we're bored other people get distracted when something becomes challenging. Some of us get distracted uh, when aversive emotions arise. We all are distracted by different things. We all wander from the present moment for different reasons. It's basically a category, but there could be 10 or 15 different things that you and myself, we all share for ways that the mind decides to stroll away from the present moment for some reason or other. Knowing what your triggers are, knowing what distracts you, what pulls you away from presence, is hugely helpful to know so you can anticipate it and in one sense prevent it by anticipating it to be proactive in your meditation. I can give you a quick example and then we'll go back through these three things Uh, myself. So if I'm doing a task and it is taking too long in my head, right? If I'm doing a task and I set out to do it for 15 minutes and 20 minutes or 25 minutes goes by, I get really impatient. And when that impatient arises, I will start thinking of other things. I'll leave the item and go do something else. I'll go take a break, I'll go stretch, I'll go grab something to drink. If something is taking longer than I would like it to take, my mind gets very aversive and my mind will pull me out of the moment of the task. And I know this about myself. So if I want to be present moment focused with something, then I have to watch for that aversion arising, which says, this is taking too long. It shouldn't be taking this long. Why is it taking this long? I'm gonna go take a break. That's what I mean. Being proactive and knowing what brings your mind out of the present moment, and I'll give you a list of them. Uh, and again, we're recording this, so you don't have to like write them all down, but uh, you'll have them to go back to. Okay, so let's talk about cues. I'll go through these. We've done, we've talked about these before on days that we've discussed journaling, but I'll go through them so they're all in one place here. In your journal, somewhere in the beginning, or wherever you t- you sort of sketch out your intentions. Um, You want to have a couple things written down the places that you tend to go in your day, the activities that you tend to take part in and the people you tend to interact with. These are your cues. And so we've talked about this before that you want to keep in mind for your life. You want to customize your practice to your life and ask yourself, you want to diagram your day as I call it. Where are the places that I go where I can be reminded to be mindful? Twice a month, when I go to the bank, I'm going to be mindful when I'm in line. Every few days, when I go to Starbucks, I'm going to be mindful when I'm waiting in the drive-thru. I do my yoga class. Well, now we're all indoors, but I do my online Tai Chi class that Kate was talking about today. When the online Tai Chi class comes, right before it starts, I'm going to do three minutes of mindful breathing. Um, Every couple days, I spend time with so-and-so. Before I spend time with that person, I'm going to spend two minutes of mindfulness. Where do you go? Who do you interact with? What kind of activities do you engage in? Remind yourself of these, because that is your life. Those are your moments. Those are your transitions. And find ones that you can use to remind yourself to be mindful. I came up with one the other day, which I haven't done, but I can't wait to try, and it just kind of is indicative of me wanting to go out. I wanted to go to the grocery store, but I didn't. I just wanted to stay safer, and so I ordered some stuff online. But I thought, oh, next time I'm in the grocery store, here's a great way to be mindful. Every time you change aisles, take a mindful breath. This is what I'm talking about as far as cues. So next time I go grocery shopping, this is what I'm going to try. Is While I'm shopping, I'm going to cue it as a mindfulness experience and when I move into a new aisle, I'm going to be mindful of my hands on the basket or my feet on the ground or something like that. So your places, your activity, your people, your moment-to-moment experiences, if you start writing them down, you will find, if you can look at them on paper, you'll be able to see, oh my gosh, there's so many I didn't think about, so many different ways that I can be present. I can remind the mind to be present for 10 seconds or 20 seconds here, 30 seconds there. So it's really helpful that you keep this list. And again, I call it diagramming my day. And every so often, I will look at my list and say, huh, which part of these that I do regularly am I never mindful in? And I'll, I'll try and add mindfulness to that particular part of my life. And it really really helps if you do it regularly and reflect in your journal on this you'll find mindfulness will increase tenfold it's a really cool uh, way of doing it and again as i always say with queuing you can do alarms on your phone a couple times a day i have an alarm that goes off that reminds me of what my intention is right now um, i have an alarm that goes off that says uh, stay grounded and so three times a day it goes off and when it goes off i take a mindful breath And I reflect, how am I trying to remain grounded today? Uh, How am I trying to remain present in the arising conditions and not be averse to the circumstances of my life? And so I have that go off a couple times a day, and it reminds me to be present with my intention. And I love doing it. It goes off, and it brings me back to presence. So cues. Remind the mind. The more you remind it, the more spontaneous mindfulness will be. And you will find over time that you don't have to do it as much. Your mind just starts to be mindful throughout the day. You'll start to find new ways to be engaged, to be present, to be awake and aware to whatever's happening. And the mind just begins to enjoy it. It starts to look forward, in fact, to opportunities. Like I said, when I thought of the grocery store, it's like, oh, I haven't tried that one. That's a way of being curious and having an attitude of discovery. What will that be like to turn grocery shopping into a mindful experience? So cueing the mind rewarding the mind. If you're going to cue the mind to be mindful, you might want to thank it for doing its job and reward it for being mindful. So the easiest way to do this, and this is really, really great for the physiology as well. When you find yourself awake and aware to the present moment, like when you find yourself driving and then all of a sudden you you remember, oh, I could be mindful of my foot on the gas pedal or I can be mindful at this stoplight. Anytime you remember to wake up to the present moment, Take a very nourishing breath. Take a very nourishing breath. That nourishing breath will stimulate the nervous system. It will reduce, It will release endorphins and reduce cortisol, the stress hormone. And the more often you do that, the mind begins to associate present moment awareness with something physically pleasurable. So you can literally treat yourself to a stress reduction moment when the mind um, engages in present moment awareness. When you're in your sit... I highly encourage that. If you wake up in your meditation and your mind's been wandering for a while, take a couple minutes to do some deep, slow breathing. Bring awareness into the pleasure and relaxation of the body, reminding the mind hey, there's pleasure here, there's nourishment here. This is a place where I can feel safe, secure, awake, and aware, and have direct contact with the experience of my existence. And the mind needs to be trained. It has to be invited, has to be encouraged and rewarded to do this. Um, Otherwise, it's just going to like all the sensory stimulation uh, that we see because it's all shiny. It's so bright and shiny. And compared to just the in-breath, it's challenging. So cue the mind, reward the mind. Another way to reward yourself is at the end of the day. And this goes for life coaching, therapy, dharma. This is just sort of neuroscience. At the end of your day... Reflect on the good in your life. What went well? So in relationship to the Dharma, you can ask yourself, how was I attentive in practice today? You know, just remind yourself of the goodness. I got my sit-in. I spoke kindly to someone who was rude to me. I didn't overreact when my cat was yelling from the other room. Compliment yourself, right? Remind yourself that there was goodness in your day and that you were present, awake, aware, and possibly filled with joy who knows but it's easier to reward yourself or reflect on the evening if you begin your day with an intention and so you all know that when i talk about journaling i often say in the morning write down a couple intentions for your dharma how can i serve today how can i be mindful today how can i be loving today and when you do that reflecting in the evening on how that landed for you is really simple it takes two minutes uh, in the morning, two minutes in the evening. And doing that is just amazing. Uh, It's amazing for self-esteem. It's amazing for a sense of resilience and courage. Uh, Some studies suggest it boosts immunity because there's a sense of confidence, right? Positive neurochemicals. Uh, So cue the mind, reward the mind. And the last one uh, for mindfulness is what distracts you? Oh my goodness, the mind is so distractible. It is crazy. I had a couple of meditations over the weekend where I literally sat down to meditate. I have no idea what happened for 45 minutes. The bell rang and it was just like my cat was asleep next to me and I don't I wasn't asleep, but I I don't know what I was doing, but I certainly wasn't meditating. And every time that happens, I completely laugh because this is like 25 years of meditation practice and still you sit down to, to meditate and your intention is like, oh, I can't wait to get into meditation and the whole set goes by and I was just fantasizing and daydreaming and and no stopping, the mind was just on a tear. Uh, and so this still happens, it's just the way the way it is. It's like, oh, all right, well, I guess I'll go get on with my day. Um, and so knowing what pulls your mind away is really important. So I've wrote out a list um, that I find are pretty common for, for students. I know they're common for me And when I go down this list, just just keep in mind if any of this resonates with you in your life as far as things that cause your mind to turn away from what's arising in the present moment. So the big one is always boredom. I have found as a coach and a therapist and a Dharma teacher that human beings have different reactions to the sensation of boredom. Some people don't mind being bored so much. Other people, as soon as boredom arises, or even the anticipation of being bored, their mind runs away from that present moment experience and has to be entertained or connected or distracted. How you relate to boredom is really, really important. Remember, boredom is a part of our hindrances, our five hindrances. It's under that apathy, can go under doubt a little bit, sloth and torpor has a little bit of that boredom in it. How you relate to boredom Is something you should know about yourself especially as a meditator how do you relate to boredom does that pull you out of the present moment if you're in a moment and that present moment contains boredom do you run for cover can you lean into it can you do some breathing can you find that sensation in your body boredom that's one of those things that pulls us away another thing that pulls us away is a sense that there's a lack of enjoyment not necessarily boredom but you're doing a task that isn't inherently fulfilling, and you have to do it anyway. Could be at work, could be cleaning, could be taking care of somebody, could be taking care of yourself in some way. What happens to you in the present moment if the task you're doing doesn't feel fulfilling, nurturing, nourishing? How do you respond? That's another one of those things that happens to all human beings. Knowing that about yourself is really helpful as a meditator, especially in and out of meditation itself. What happens when I am not finding a sense of satisfaction? Now, boredom is different because boredom is that sense of like, I want to be entertained. This could be something you have to do, but there's no nourishment in it. How do you respond? Can you fabricate a different experience as we've talked about before? This is where fabrication comes in. Can you engage differently Mm -hmm. versus letting your mind run away from the experience? So boredom uh, and then this sense of not having pleasure right? Not feeling satiated. Another one is what do you do when you feel challenged? How do you relate to difficulties? No matter what the difficulty might be, when a difficulty arises in life, all of us have a go-to habit pattern that we do. Suddenly you're online trying to order from Amazon. You're trying to do whatever. You're trying to find some news. You're trying to work with a person or you're trying to get your kids ready for something. You're trying to talk to your spouse and it becomes difficult. When difficulty arises in the present moment, what is your your go-to response, right? Does the mind stay with that or does it react, right? Does it leave? Does it get angry? Does it hide? Does it flee? Um, who knows? Everyone's going to be different, of course. But that's something to know about oneself, especially as a meditator. What do you do the moment you have a sensation of difficulty that arises? I know with me, it triggers a childhood family of origin story of, I'm not good enough. I'll never figure this out. And even though I can figure it out, I notice that my mind will want to take a break from the difficulty and it will start going into this mode of like, I'll never be able to figure this out. I can't do this. It's too difficult. I need someone to help me. Even if it's something that's easy, my common response, uh, based on past trauma is I'm not good enough. I won't be able to do this. And my mind wants to escape from that initial moment now I've learned to overcome that. So when it arises, I'm aware of it and I just keep moving, but I know that my mind has an aversive response to feeling like something initially is challenging. Another one that is really interesting is how do you respond when you're afraid? What happens when fear arises in present moment? Where does the mind go? This is very interesting to know what your immediate reaction is when fear arises. Does it think a certain way? Does the body do something? Most of us, when fear arises, do not stay present with fear. We distract, we deny, we move away, we find something else to do. Uh, Fear arising and worry arising tends to be an aversive, distractible emotion. So these are the kind of emotions that we have to look at. Like, how do we respond when the present moment has something like this in it? And it's important to note that these kind of emotions can be triggered in all kinds of different parts in your life, in the workplace, in your marriage or partnership, with your kids. It could be different for different people. The triggers could be different. So when fear arises in the workplace, you might barrel through because you've got your job at stake. But what happens when fear arises in your marriage or in close friendships or with a parent or a child? How do you respond then? really looking at how the different habit patterns arise and pass away in different contexts are really important. Like I said earlier, um, you might get really skillful in one part of your life through meditation, but there might be another part that's just really challenging because we don't grow. Um, hold on a second. I'm going to actually use the word I came up with earlier because I thought of this. Give me a second. Ah, we don't, <laughs> we don't grow uniformly, right? We don't grow uniformly. Our habits don't grow uniformly. And so what I mean by that is like, you can deal with fear in one part of your life and start feeling meditation really working, but then there's another part of your life where fear is really still overwhelming and that it throws you and that it really is difficult, even though you feel like you're gaining skills and mindfulness. You can be able to offer yourself, say, self-love in one part of your life, but then be very hard on yourself in a completely different part of your life. There isn't a uniformity to the experience. So I just want to throw that out there because I thought about that uh, earlier as an explanation. So what when you ask yourself what distracts you, what type of emotions throw you off? What type of emotions send you out of balance? What causes you to lose the balance of your mind and what kind of moments. These are really good reflections, and this is a lifelong reflection. It's not like you're gonna find the answer and then just move on as a a practitioner. You're gonna to continue to reflect. This is one of the things, put it as a page in your journal, and every so often go back to these emotions and ask yourself, how am I responding when these things arrive? And another aspect of this you could reflect on is, does the mind go to the past, or does it go to the future? Where does it actually go? when it's not interested in being present. That's another thing that can be really helpful for sustaining mindfulness is knowing where it tends to go. We all have tendencies. So some of us like to roll in the future. Some of us really love to talk about dwell, escape to the past. Some of us do, um, you know, worrying and the worrying tends to be more of a future worrying. Other people, when they worry, they go to the past and they say, see what happened back here? What if that happens again? So getting to know yourself intimately in this way can be hugely helpful for sustaining mindfulness, along with sustaining investigation, as we uh, spoke about earlier. Cueing, rewarding, and finding out what pulls the mind away, what distracts you, hugely helpful reflections uh, to sustain mindfulness. Getting mindfulness on, off the ground is one thing, but keeping it moment to moment is a completely different reality, which is a little bit difficult for all of us as practitioners. And it just takes some patience. It just takes some uh, determination as those habits push back. It takes some self-care and some self-love, right? Patience and persistence on the path is so hugely helpful because there is so much to it. It's completely changing your relationship that you have to yourself. And that brand new relationship is going to be something that has to be nurtured. It has to be loved and cared for. It has to be given lots of sunlight and lots of nutrients and lots of affection. And that's the way we grow and change and sustain these heart-mind qualities on the path. So to bring it all together, uh, this is all, of course, practice. You don't take it in all at once. I would encourage you to take one or two of these kind of things and uh, look at it week to week for a few weeks. Look at Look at a part of it and take it on Take on something that's uh, you've never done before and put it into practice and uh, give me a shout out and tell me how it's going and what you've tried and the insights you've had, what works, what doesn't work. And share it with somebody. It always helps to share your practice with others. So try something new. Tell somebody, hey, tell your partner, tell a friend, tell someone in the Wednesday wake-up group. I'm trying, to, trying out this this week. I'm trying to be mindful in this week. I'll let you know how it goes because studies show that sharing your successes and letting people know when you're learning new stuff, hugely helpful for uh, getting new habits online. So it applies totally to Dharma, and Dharma is a habit, uh, and happiness is a habit. And so uh, take it on in that way as a exploration of creativity and joy and discovery, and you'll you'll do great because the mind is designed to be free. It's designed to be successful at these habits. We have the potential to do them, and with practice, everyone in this room, so to speak, is capable of being successful at this with some uh, patience and determination.